This is Michael Easley in Context. Here's a peek at what Michael will be talking about today. Let's talk a little more about this, though. Passion, uh, entitlement. Passion kind of sounds like a dream. Yeah, I mean, it can be dreamy. I just think that dreamers are a dime a dozen. Doers are rare. For more information, go to michaelincontext.com. And now your host, Dr. Michael Easley. When it comes to Christians and making fun of Christians and satire, perhaps no one does it better than John Acuff. John is a quick-minded, a quick student, a quick-witted individual who can look at something we, we all sort of you know, have RCA dog ears toward. We look at it and go, what's wrong with that? And John can turn a phrase and say it in such a way that is really funny. He has a website called Stuff Christians Like. He's an author. His wife is working on a book right now called How to Be Married to a Dreamer. And John, he operates under this notion that if you're going to do something 40 hours a week, it'd be good to love it. It'd be good to like it and not dread it every single day. It is a great privilege to have John in studio today. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. How are you doing? I'm good. I, I feel pretty awesome about life. Yeah, you feel pretty awesome. Do you like stuff? I do. I like <laughs> a lot of stuff. I'm constantly liking stuff. So tell us about stuff Christians like. Yeah, so I grew up in the church. My dad's a pastor. Um, he started a Baptist church in Massachusetts in the 80s, which was unheard where, of. Where in Massachusetts? Um, Central Massachusetts. It was in Hudson. Mm-hmm. So kind of Hudson, Marlboro, Worcester area. And I, it always weirded me out that we don't use our best creativity to celebrate who we believe is the creator of all creativity. So we take popular secular ideas like got mm-hmm. milk and put a little God flavor on them and <laughs> got God. And I just think that Christians are in general some lazy creatives. And I thought, why do we rip off popular culture? So there was a site called Stuff White People Like, which is a kind of a satire of Caucasia, if you will. So I thought, why don't I talk about the problem by committing the problem? So okay. post number one was Stuff Christians Like ripping off popular secular culture. Okay. I thought I'd write about it for a week, but day nine, 4,000 people showed up and wow. it went viral. And it's been a, it's been something much more fun and much bigger than me ever since. Okay. People that follow you, whether on Twitter or your site or some of your historical humor, uh, they got, you know, it's like, it's like Larson. Where does he get these ideas? Where, where does John Acuff go in his mind that he comes up with these crazy observations? Yeah, well, part of it, my, my mother-in-law said it best because people would say, how does he do it? And she would say, how did he not do it is the question. Okay. I mean, I was writing tweets before Twitter existed on post-it notes and ideas. And so it's the same thing I'd say to you as a pastor. You'd, you'd share ideas whether you had a pulpit or not. And so I feel like this is the briar patch for me. I remember in college sitting there at Sanford University watching these popular basketball players. And I I did not have many friends in college. And I felt like there was a great weight in the sense of these basketball players, what they were best at was seen and was visible. And what I was best at writing ideas wasn't visible. And then all of a sudden the internet came. And so I felt like my entire skill set I mean, I, I learned how to write headlines at Home Depot. I mean, what a, what a gift that was. And so <laughs> Twitter's a headline. And people say, when will you stop writing stuff Christians like? And I said, when Christians stop being idiots. And so never. I think you got plenty of time. Yeah. When, when you look at some of these things, um, what's the switch that goes on, off in your head that turns that little sarcastic thing? Well, for me, it's can I, can I teach some truth in this? I think the people always ask, how do you not end up mocking? Yeah. And I think the difference between mockery and satire is that mockery always has a victim. 
It always has an individual. The goal of satire is to share humor with a purpose. The goal of mockery is to cause a wound. They're mm-hmm. very different things. And to tell you the truth, you get a quick laugh with mockery, but you lose the ability to speak in love later. Yeah. And so one of the signs for me is I'll write about an issue. I'll never write about an individual. Yeah. So I'd never go, let's talk about Rob Bell. People show up and you, you chum the waters for the sharks of the internet. We have enough jerk Christian blogs. Right. So I might go, let's talk about hell. Like what are, there's a lot of things going on right now where, so that's what I try to do. And I don't always get it right. I mean, I've made a ton of mistakes, but I try to only point the finger at me. So I try mm-hmm. to find something in my own life. Yeah. Self-deprecating. My, the way I write is this. I'll go first with my story. I give everyone in the room, everyone in the blog, everyone in the church the gift of going second. Mm-hmm. It's hard to go first, but as a communicator, I think that's your job and you allow other people. And, and unfortunately, leaders right now, a lot of them only share two things, the times they won or a failure from 30 years ago that doesn't hurt anymore. Mm-hmm. And millennials can spot that fakeness from a mile away. They grew up with marketing. It's the smartest marketing generation in the history yeah, of mankind. Yeah. And so the bar is really low on honesty. So when I go, hey, my wife and I had a fight last week, and it wasn't one of those fake Christian ones where the sun doesn't go down. Like the sun went down, and so did you on the couch. (laughs) It was a real one, and here's what we learned. They go, that's so honest. And I think, that is nothing. You should hear what I tell my counselor. Yeah. John, talk to me a little bit about uh, careers. You've had a number of jobs in your history. You seem to have found a niche helping people at least think through transition and careers. And, you know, when we were in the D.C. area, uh, the military has a high turnover somewhere between, you know, 15, 20 years. Wow. Now they got to find a job. They weren't told what to do the next thing. So now how do I start? What do I do? And you interact with not only that age group, but some younger folks that are trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. Yeah, I think the thing you have to, the first thing you have to do is kind of not buy the lie the world tells you, which is a job is just a job. Um, Anything you do 40 hours a week isn't a job. That's your life. I mean, it's the largest percent of your waking hours. So you want it to have purpose. And I think it can have purpose. And so the way I look at it is it's going deeper into who God made you to be. You know, when he says he'll renew your strength, it's your strength, your unique strength. Mm. It's not your mom's strength. It's not he'll satisfy your desires with good things. It's not other people's things. It's your things. And so for me, it's about figuring out what was I created to do and how do I do it? Um, Mm. And giving yourself permission to dream, permission for it not to be miserable. I mean, I know 70 percent, statistically, 70 percent of Americans hate their jobs right now. So seven of the 10 people in this building, in the building next door, don't want to go there. And that that weighs down on family. And the problem is, as you know, we're only one person. You see, we have this kind of what I call the Tiger Woods mentality. It was very interesting when Tiger Woods had his affairs come out. People thought, why is he not a good golfer right now? Mm. He's not a good golfer because you don't get to put an explosion in one part of your life and the rest of your life works. He's not Tiger golfer, Tiger businessman, Tiger father, Tiger husband. And so what happens is that you see this infection of bitterness and hopelessness and mm. defeat take root in a career, and you better believe it comes home on the weekend. You yeah. better believe it comes to the marriage. And so that's where I try to try to write to is that it doesn't have to be that way. And I don't believe there's such a thing as a perfect job. I always say every job has things you have to do that you don't like to do so that you can earn right. the right to do the things you do love to do. But I think culturally we've lost the gift of apprenticeship, which has really hurt us. We've lost a lot of the hard work and hustle things because – The iPhones taught us that life is instant. Anything you practice 10 hours a day, you believe will be like that the next day. So if my phone is instant, it goes, you matter, you matter, build your own world. It's instant, instant, instant. The minute I don't get my dream job, it's like, what, you know, where's my dream job? Well, speak that a little bit because you're a little bit of an anomaly in that regard because most 30 and under have an enormous entitlement mindset. 
And I talk to young men and women often who, I don't want to do this job because i got to find my passion. And it's almost like they've created a glove and a hand. And I say, well, what if you had three fingers in that glove, not all five? Wouldn't that work? No, i got to do my passion and my dream. And it seems we've skipped a generation from my builder work ethic. You know, you get a job, you do your best, and you look for something else. Sure. But you do your best wherever you are as opposed to playing Xbox or, you know, whatever till two in the morning. Yeah, the average 21-year-old has played 10,000 hours of video games That's by the time they're 21. So, and granted, they all those all lead to professional video game playing careers, so it's a great <laughs> path. Well done. But no, here's how I look at it. Passion is nonsense. There's people in Franklin where we both live that will go, I want to start a coffee shop. Oh, gosh. Um, I've never done it. Um, <laughs> I'm going to mortgage my house. It's going to, like, I'm going to do all these different things. And gonna I'll have go, bands play. Yeah, it's going to be cool. Could you work at Starbucks for six months first and see if you hate coffee and humans? And I mean, I have friends. That's a long-term passion of theirs, but you don't see them selling their house right. to go like go all in. And so I think that's part of the mistake is that you're right. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. If you do 10% more in your dream this week, this year than you did last year, what an amazing thing. And we get that with other parts of our life. If you said to me, hey, I've never run, I'm overweight, but I want to do a marathon tomorrow. Excuse me. Excuse yeah, me. well, <laughs> I mean, a darker shirt would hide that. Um, if you said to me, I want to run a marathon tomorrow, I'd go, that's pretty dumb. Um, yep. um, but what happens is people go, okay, I'm here. I have a guitar. I know three chords and like four Chris Tomlin songs, and God called me. The worst thing that Christians do is they throw God, God under the bus. Me, yeah. And my friend says it this way. He said that Christians like to be in an airplane with God, and he's flying, and we Red Bull Christianity and skydive out, and he turns back and goes, who told you to jump? Like, I was going to land this in like six months, like on a <laughs> runway. And then it fails, and we go, Jesus' uh, plan for my organic muffin shop didn't work. Didn't and work Jesus out. goes, "Don't no, 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 no. I, I had nothing to do with that. Stop it. Yeah, well, let's, let's talk a little more about this, though. Passion, uh, entitlement. Passion kind of sounds like a dream. Yeah, I mean, it can be dreamy. I just think that dreamers are a dime a dozen. Doers are rare. So so help the 20-something, 30-something mindset. Maybe they've got a, a job at Deloitte Tooch or they've got a job, you know, they're doing something that's... They're at a health per, company. Yeah, they're, they're working 8 to 5, punching the clock. They sort of hate it. And they got this passion to do X. Well, the first thing I'd say is that um, start to do it. Find some margin. I would dare you to rescue 30 minutes of your day. If I say to you, hey, get up 30 minutes early and write or job search or work on a business plan, you go, oh, I can't do that. If you can't pay the price of 30 minutes early on your dream, you don't have the right dream. Like, you're going to hate the rest of it. So I'd say the first thing that every dream costs, Michael, is time. It doesn't cost money. Mm -hmm. It doesn't cost education. It costs hustle and time. So what I'd say to you is let's find some time. You know, the average American watches over 35 hours of TV a week. So let's be radical and say you watch 10 hours less. You only watch 25 hours a week. There's 10 hours on your dream. Mm -hmm. And so I'd find you time and I'd find a small way to start. It's all about small starts. So if you wanted to write a book, I'd say read a book about writing a book. Mm -hmm. Or if you wanted to be a blogger, I'd say start a blog and write once a week. The reason we get overwhelmed is that we go so far in so quickly. Can't do it all. Um, and entitlement, entitlement's the worst. Laziness um, and just that expectation, even with speakers, public speakers, I'm one. And I'll go speak places and they'll say, they don't talk about my message after the host. They'll say, hey, thanks for being so kind. You know, the last pastor that came wouldn't speak to the room until it was full and we had to get college kids to fill out the wow. seats. And you were really kind. You didn't swear at any of the staff or hit on any of the college girls. And if the bar for me being excellent is, that... is not hitting on people, not my wife, I am going to dominate. Yeah. <laughs> I am the Michael Jordan of not hitting on people, not my wife. What, what are you seeing in the 20, 30 something is encouraging to you? 
Um, I see that they care about their parents in a unique way. Um, When I was in college, I never bought a book from a speaker. I I had enough books, like $90 textbooks. But when I go speak at places, they'll buy two copies of books I write, one for them and one for their dad. And they'll go, I think that generation's waking up to the idea that there's not a gold watch at the end. There's not a pot of gold. I mean, they've all had parents that got laid off out of nowhere at a 20-year place and, you know, showed up one day and the place was closed. And so I think there's some empathy there. I think there's a strong desire to try to change the world. Um, I think that can be really well used or really poorly used, depending on how it's applied. So I think there's this this natural sense of that. I don't think they love money like previous generations have loved money. It's not the only score they care about. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing is I've met a lot of them that, that want to hustle, that want to I, – I talked to a guy yesterday from Australia, and when he was 21 – he heard a story about somebody who had sold pieces of the Brooklyn Bridge in the 1920s and framed them, and they were tearing down the G, which is the Australian version of like Yankee Stadium, okay. biggest stadium in Australia. So he called the demolition crew because they were going to build a new one and said, can I buy some timber? And they said, well, we've got the rug, and it's the rug from the members' room. And the members' room is a 45-year-long wait to become kind of the elite wow. member. He bought the entire rug that day for five grand, sold a 1,000 pieces <laughs> of it, made millions. Sure. He's 21. Yeah. So. I keep running into these 21-year-olds that are realizing the old rules don't apply. I have instant access to everybody and uh-huh. experts. And so I love to meet a 19-year-old college student and go, start a blog today. Because in three years, when you sit down with a company and they go, well, how do we know you're passionate? You'll go, well, here's my blog and Seth Godin and Christian leaders. And I'll bring 50,000 readers to your platform, to your industry mm-hmm. job that want to buy what you do because I was passionate. So I do meet a lot of younger generation that are willing to grind. I, mm. You know, some some are entitled, a lot aren't. Let's let's go back a little bit. Talk about uh, how John Acuff came to know God. How did you come to know Christ? Well, I grew up in the church, but that's, that's, that's not an instant. Um, I became a Christian in the fourth grade. My dad baptized me on Father's Day. He always tells a story huh. that two people showed up that day, me and a, a drunk guy with no shirt on and a leather jacket. Um, <laughs> he did not baptize him. Um, and so I would say that was kind of the genesis. But for me, it was really about eight years ago where I was able to get away with most of my life. Like I could put it together with charisma or, or talent or whatever, but... I just was at a job I hated. My marriage was not in a good place. And mm. it was the first time I really felt that sense of I can't fix me with me. Uh, it was just broken. And there was a group of guys in Atlanta that befriended me and really taught me how to be, you know, a man and how to have friendships. Mm-hmm. I mean, I meet so many men that go, yeah, my wife's my accountability partner. And that's garbage. Right, right. That is garbage. She can't work. be your warden. She can't be the one who checks your safe eyes record. Like, way to ruin a marriage. Like, shortcut. (laughs) They're a sponsor. They're great. But that is not a good. And I was just in a terrible place. And so I really got loved by this church, Woodstock Baptist, in in Woodstock, Georgia. And kind of one of those big churches that you think would have big church stuff, but they have a real heart for the broken. Mm. And I I definitely was. So that was, I would say, about eight years ago is really where I started to kind of understand. What changes did you see after that clarification? Well, I mean, just communication with my wife was a big mm-hmm. one. Um, we, I heard somebody say, if your wife is for you, it doesn't matter if the world's against you. Mm-hmm. And if your wife is against you, it doesn't mm-hmm. matter if the yeah. world. Mm-hmm. And I just, we started the dream together. I mean, we got to come to Nashville and join Dave Ramsey's team out of the birth of learning how to even be on the same page. And, you know, one plus one in a marriage equals a million when you're together. So that would be a big one. Um, mm-hmm. Having guys that knew me, um, I think that a lot of men are multiple people and not being mm-hmm. a multiple person it, 
was just so much more peaceful, like not waiting for secrets to come doesn't, out. Doesn't wear you out as much, does it? It's exhausting yeah, to be, to be multiple people. And so I would say those are two big changes. Uh-huh. What would Jenny say to that? When- I would say we're working on Jenny's book right now, and she just wrote a chapter about at the start of our marriage, it was like she was invisible. Like I would make big decisions and tell her after. Uh-huh. And I'd go, you know, quit a job. Hey, I quit my job. She'd go, but, uh, but we're engaged. Like, how come? And that didn't even cross my mind. And then so you, she moved from invisibility to you get to be the cheerleader. And the cheerleader says, yay, they don't criticize. And so there's a lot of marriages when the husband and the wife know their roles. And how dare the wife? The cheerleader doesn't tell the quarterback play ideas at halftime. And so then Jenny and I kind of had to mature out of that. And so I, I'd say it's been a process. I mean, we're only 13 years in and, and we've learned a lot, but we, we don't know a lot, too. Mm-hmm. But I think that's what she'd say. Jenny's background? Uh, Jenny's background, she grew up in uh, Lilburn, Georgia. Mm-hmm. Um, she got her undergrad in uh, photojournalism and her master's in construction management from Georgia Tech. So, And when did she come to Christ? How was she? She came to Christ in the second grade. Second grade, young. Yeah. Uh-huh. So she's, yeah, she grew up in it too. Talk to a young couple who is, uh, maybe they got good jobs, but they're in that kind of angst. They got a little dream out there and maybe the in-laws aren't exactly excited about son-in-law or daughter-in-law venturing out on a dream. Give them some steps on how you approach it from a, a high level. Okay, what do, I, what do I need to do 10 hours a week, for example? What else, what else do I need to do? Well, one of the things I, I talk about often is that um, people are tired of words. They love actions. Jenny and I's marriage changed when I fo- finally started doing actions. When she could see as a wife, John just didn't say, I'm going to write and I'm going to do stuff. I got up an hour early. I, mm-hmm. I sacrificed TV. And so what I'd say to a couple that, you know, whether it's an in-laws, whether it's each other, actions matter. Actions matter. So start to build up a long action list. The other thing I'd say is give other people the grace to not understand your dream. You know, Mm -hmm. if they understood it 100%, it wouldn't be yours, it'd be theirs. Mm -hmm. And so I think even in the best of circumstances, there's going to be a gap because you know the shows like Bridezilla where a bride just flips out and she throws a table and she hits the caterer. That happens because that little girl dreamed about that day since she was six. So what happens is you've had a dream in your heart for something for 20 years and then you tell your spouse, your in-law, you should understand how I feel. I got, it took me two decades to get here. You've got two hours. Go. And so I think part of it is on us being willing for somebody to not understand. Jonathan, when, when you think about the next chapter for you, the next dream for you, how does your walk with Christ affect what you do creatively? Well, a big part of it is I feel called to talk to the business community. I'm in a position where I get invited places pastors can't get invited. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, some power company, the HR person can invite me. And they, they can't invite the pastor even if they wanted to right. because of, of rules. And so I feel like what I'm uniquely positioned to do is go speak to the marketplace. I've got 16 years of marketing experience with secular companies. I've got, you know, a blog a lot of people read. But I really feel like that's where I'm supposed to be. So. I think that's how my faith will impact that. I think that I'm supposed to go there and be honest and and use humor. I think we forgot God is fun. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I learned a few years ago that I was really good at crying with God and really bad at celebrating with him. Mm. Um, and I had made him into an emo God. <laughs> and so I think a lot of people, Christians have the hardest time with the prodigal son story, um, with that, that party sense. And we just... We have such a hard time understanding and believing that concept. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love that story. It's my favorite story. Um, I love that the father never talks to the son. If you read it, he doesn't say a single word to him. Mm-hmm. And we read it as if he does, but he doesn't. He, he gives him the money without a word, and then he talks to the servants. And so I love to tell people, you know, when God's quiet, we think it's because he's mad. But what if he's hugging you and he's too busy planning your party? Like, mm-hmm. imagine that, God. That's just fun. Mm-hmm. You've got an interest in Vietnam. My daughter saw a starving child in a book and said, 
you know, what is that? And I told her and she said, was well, that pretend that's not real? Right. And it was one of those kids punching the stomach moments. And I felt like she was saying, are you doing anything? And I wasn't, I was, the blog was about me. I think the worst drug in Christianity is celebrity. Mm. I've seen celebrity and success ruin more Christian leaders than failure. Mm. Um, so I started to do something and I, I asked Samaritan's purse to partner with me and we, we raised $30,000 in 18 hours to build a kindergarten. And it was one of those moments where you undersize God and you go, you're huge, made the universe, you're just not as big as my divorce. Right. And we realized we had made him a $29,000 God and didn't think he'd show up, and he did. And so we doubled down and built a second one. And Jenny and I got to go over to Vietnam and see these two kindergartens. And what it taught me was that there's no better example of the mustard seed power of God than the internet. I mean, there were people that gave to that project that'll never go to Vietnam, that'll never meet any of those sure. people. You know, this show will be heard by people you can't fathom. And so when you get God in technology, it's just the sky's the limit. And so that was one of the things we really learned about. Will you go back? Yeah, I think we're, uh, we're, we're talking, you know, I'm in a new phase of my life, um, so we're figuring things out. But I think we're going to go back. The, statistically, I mean, one fact is Ho Chi Minh or Hanoi has 6 million residents and 6,000 Christians. So you do the math on that and go, what, you know, what a place where you could really see God catch fire and really, mm-hmm. you know, my, my heart is for folks. Um, I love New England. I've got a real heart for New England. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's no cultural Christianity to kind of sort through. I mean, sometimes in the South, your first job is convincing somebody who grew up in it they're not a Christian right. so that you can then get them to become a Christian. But I just love the blank slate of New England where it's, you know, you never ask somebody where they go to church, like, whoa, whoa, right. easy, Jesus. <laughs> like, are we at work right now? And just that's what I grew up with. So I feel like God might have us do something up there, um, but certainly back in Vietnam when we can. Probably Vietnam be easier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> New England's a tough area, but that's your home. So you're now uh, 85 years old. Yeah, yeah. You're on a rocking chair. Sure. Looking back over your life, your kids, maybe you got a couple more. You got some grandkidlings sure. around, and you and Jenny are looking over the land. What do you regret? What do you remember? Uh, I regret not trying more things. Probably. I'm sure. I I'm sure I regret the things that. I'm sure I regret the amount of time and energy I gave to worry. Um, I'm glad that I taught my kids how to write a good story. I mean, mm. we've, we've talked before about what would it look like for us to move our family to New York for a year, mm. just to try it. Um, what I learned with my kids, so we, we moved into a neighborhood in Franklin that the houses are kind of small, they're a little older, um, and we, we maybe could have had a, a newer house or a slightly bigger house, but our kids can walk to school. And we knew when they were 35, they wouldn't look back and go, growing up, I had such ample closet space. Mm-hmm. They'd say, growing up, I could walk to school. And so my hope is that what we'll look back on is the times we made story decisions where we chose the opposite of the money, we chose the opposite of the, of the easy thing. I mean, most radio interviews I do right now go, you had it all, you were five months into a New York Times bestseller, and then you ruined it. Talk to me about that. And so that will do the things that to the outside world might seem crazy or opposite of what you should do if that's what we're supposed to do. So I hope I have a life characterized by, by not letting um, the popular decision dictate what I do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When, when John Acuff is the most at rest, the most content, uh, I don't like the word happy because it's too uh, sure. effusive, but when you're content, when you're you're smiling at the future, what's that look like for you? I think I'm writing. A lot mm-hmm. of times when I'm writing, like I'm just like a little kid, like I'm snapping my fingers and I'm just animated. Um, I like to being exhausted. I think for me, mm-hmm. being spent, like where 
I've run a race that was hard. I've tried something that was difficult. Um, I feel that way when I come home from a speech that I got to try to hopefully mm-hmm. give my all. I, I got to speak at Kairos um, the other night, and, and I love that place. So many young mm-hmm. adults. I've done it maybe eight or nine times, and it was messy. Like it, things happened in the moment, and it was, it was fun. And I, I felt like okay, and not a. It used to be when I first started speaking. Honestly, it was a affirmation kind of warm glow right. of I'm a good guy, and now I don't feel that anymore. So yeah, I'd say like for me, it's it's six fifteen in the morning. I got up before everybody else and I'm writing and I'm, you know, and the best part of writing is when you don't remember writing it. And it's like God shows up and goes, Mm. Hey, here's an idea. You know, uh, I was writing the other day and wrote that, um, unfulfilled passion creates pressure because I know so many husbands Mm. that take out their anger of, they know they're not doing what they're supposed to be on a spouse. And, and so I, I thought, well, that's a neat idea. Like, let me, you know, that's what I like to do is show up and let God show up. Mm-hmm. So those would be some, some peaceful moments. Again, thanks, John, for being on the broadcast today. Remember, you can go to Stuff Christians Like and find out a lot more about John Acuff, about his writing, his wit, and the next projects that are coming up. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope you'll join us again on the broadcast. This is Michael Easley in Context.